Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This podcast was recorded a couple of weeks ago with Jacob Midkiff. Jacob is a filmmaker, rapper, and deep thinker. I don't want to blow too much smoke up his ass, but uh, had a really great conversation with him. Uh, learned an awful lot, and I really look forward to working with him again soon. So please enjoy. Yeah. I don't need a preface. Just throw me <laughs> an introduction to maybe your hype man. Good now. Yeah. <laughs> it's really funny watching. Uh, did you see the James Brown movie with uh, Chadwick Boseman? I have called Get On Up. Mm-mm. Oh, it's 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 not a great movie, <laughs> but it's just fun because you see what it was, what it's like to have a hype man. You know, he had Bobby. It's like Bobby. Oh yeah. Right. So like yeah. every song, you've got him. You know, he's saying Bobby, can I take him to the bridge? Go on, take him to the bridge. He's just and Bobby is just standing on the side of the stage. <laughs> entirely there for him to play off of he's like a dramatic foil almost mm-hmm. but for music well, that was really cool and I the same thing I saw the same thing when uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the band this is a long time ago never mind I'm just gonna leave it as it is yeah I completely lost my train of thought it's okay are um, we recording yet? <laughs> yeah I am recording oh actually. nice yeah, yeah. Um, great start yeah hype man yeah you ever have a hype man when you perform? Actually, yeah, me and uh, my buddy, we make music together. So it's more like he's less of just a hype man. And just when I'm doing my verse, he's hyping up that verse. And when he's doing his, I'm hyping up his. So it's more just like typical two-person group kind of vibing off one another. Okay, so it's not like a planned out choreographed sort of thing. Not at all. We just know each other's music well enough that we just know like the right parts to emphasize Mm -hmm. more than just like... I don't know. The crowd's usually into it anyways because once you have two people kind of going off one another, it's way more engaging than one person on stage just rapping. Is that how hip-hop pretty much started? Call and response? That's something I I read that somewhere. Hip-hop started as uh, just kind of breakdancing. That's where it kind of all started. New York, there was people... The, you know, the impoverished areas, they were listening to break beats, you know, they would, that's when DJs would take these little selections of disco songs, soul songs, just like these little drum beats, and then they would just put them together and have it a loop, they would loop it over and over, and uh, dancers realized, well, we can, like, totally get down to this, like, just loop this on forever, and then so it really started with breakdancing and DJing, and then they would be playing at parties, and then, like, people at parties would just start, like, vibing with it and just start rapping over top of it. It, like, just became a weird thing out of nowhere. So it was a natural progression from just from just dancing. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Dancing and, and DJing. And then MCs just... It, it was a party culture. It wasn't even, like, a music genre. It was just people, like, having fun together as a community. Mm-hmm. So... So when did you start rapping? Uh... I think the first song I recorded was in eighth grade. Oh, wow. You've been yes. doing this for a while. Yeah, I was. I'm, I think I was 13 at the time. Um, what was it called? That one was called Smoke in the Air. No, it was something. It was, it was as typical as it sounds being a white rapper. It was over top of the beat from 8 Mile. Not Lose Yourself, but the one where every time he hears it in 8 Mile, he just vibes. Halfway Crooks. I, I, I honestly, I have not seen 8 Mile. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Well, it's... <laughs> so, either way, it's from that movie in particular, where it was like a big theme in that movie. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I had to remake that song as my first rap 
solo debut. <laughs> no, it's not a bad way to get started. You can get yeah. used to the, the form, right? Yeah, I mean, it was a good way. It wasn't even something I wrote, which I think is the only time I've ever rapped something I didn't write personally, was my very first song. Really? Yeah. Because since then, I, I, I hate ghost writers. I hate the idea of other people writing what I have to perform. It just, there's no connection there. And that is all over the hip-hop culture, isn't it? I mean, like I, I can't remember who I was talking to, but they were telling me that Gilly the Kid from Philly mm-hmm. wrote uh, Lil Wayne's The Carter Two. Yeah. And then Lil Wayne dissed Gilly, like his next album. And it was like this big, I don't keep up with it, I don't read whatever the magazines mm-hmm. are. But I was like, well, that's ungrateful. Yeah. And then the same guy I was talking to said, yeah, well, if you listen to Lil Wayne's style, even up through the Carter Three, it's a very Philadelphia oh, yeah. kind of version. I mean, I once again, I don't really know what I'm talking about. But you were telling me that uh, you did not get into hip hop through hip hop. No, I hated rap originally. What rap did you hate? Like Will Smith? I mean, was it that? No, uh, Will Smith and stuff. I could get behind that stuff to an extent, but I never really pieced that as a genre. What I associate as rap was what I heard on the radio, like in the car at the time. uh, Since then, I've kind of adjusted more to it. But it was like Kanye West, and I, I I despise early two thousand rap, like Fifty Cent and stuff. I just wasn't into. And the majority is what I guess other white people really critique is it's, just, it's all about, you know, money and bitches and drugs and yada yada. And I, I just wasn't feeling it. I was listening to, you know, Metallica, which then transcended into Trivium and mm-hmm. Lamb of God. And uh, and then it, it made the crossover where I started listening to metal rap, like uh, I was showing you Head P.E., mm-hmm. Um, there was a group called Cottonmouth Kings, which only rapped about weed, but it was the first concert I went to. Hence Cottonmouth. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> as obvious as that. <laughs> but um, so it kind of went there. And then that's when I got introduced to Notorious B.I.G., Wu-Tang Clan. And I started realizing the culture in hip hop versus just the mainstream rap we hear on the radios. And that's like, that is when my life completely changed was hearing the culture versus the currency of music. Do you go to a lot of shows? I try to, but I not much good hip-hop comes around in Ohio especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen a lot of local musicians that I really respect. Um, Ohio, weirdly enough, has a really good hip-hop culture. Columbus, there's a bunch of great MCs up there that are have their own styles and really good music, honestly. And Athens, of all places, has a hip-hop culture, which blows my mind, really? being in Appalachia. Oh, yeah. It's dwindled down since my freshman year here of my undergrad, but it's still, like, living. It's died a lot, sadly. I'm sorry. With the union. When the union burned, so did hip-hop. It took a big, uh, it took a big hit. Apparently, that you're telling me that record store across from the union's closing soon, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Sad. Oh, well. And that, like... I had big plans for that record store. <laughs> I just got like a vinyl converter, so I was gonna be like live sampling uh-huh. off vinyl. So I was I was just gonna be crate digging daily at Hafa's, but the sad reality of it closing. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm so sorry to hear that. Everyone should be sorry. <laughs> it's like if I had money to actually spend on albums, I probably would hang out there. But being in in film school, it's just mm-hmm. like, okay, are you gonna get your work done, or are you gonna enjoy yourself? That's Can the thing, you though. do both? I, I, I haven't found that balance myself, Jacob. They have a huge collection of used vinyls for a dollar. 
So just crate dig, and what I would usually do is just like judge off the artwork because mm-hmm. I, I would love to play it at random because most of the used stuff is stuff you've never heard of. And then if I saw like a really cool album art, I'd be like, all right, that's one. And I like in my undergrad every week I would buy five used vinyls, like just five dollars a week, just find five cool things and listen to them and it, it would spread over every genre it's, it was pretty cool do you uh, produce your own work or do you and your buddy like take turns producing each other because I was listening to to, to rhetoric again this morning uh, to prepare for this discussion and um, it sounds really good for one um, I'm noticing also that in mainstream kind of trap which has mm-hmm. got blown up huge these days oh yes the vocals are not dominating the mix the hook is mm-hmm. and the beat is yeah and in your music you have a very solid baseline of the actual instrumental but then your voice is front and center because it's mm-hmm. all about the lyrics it's mm-hmm. about you know you trying to express an idea i thought that was really interesting i never noticed that before where it's like okay the lyrics are versace 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 yeah you know like i i get it it's more the rhythm that plays trap music is notorious like the the sad thing is is like most of the credit is due to the producers for making like these the the production's really well done it's just the MCs who get it credited for those songs aren't really doing much other than just staying on beat <laughs> sometimes <laughs> but uh no that was like my my music i mean it's not made to be danced to in a no. club that was and that's the other thing too is like all that trap music, well, the popular trap mm-hmm. music these days is all like designed to be in a club. Mm-hmm. And it's all, I don't know what the actual rhythm mm-hmm. is or beats per minute, but it's its clearly designed to shake your ass to. It's oh, not, yeah. This is not deep philosophical stuff. It's always <laughs> weird when I do live shows, though, because I often get put together with trap artists and like more modern radio rappers, SoundCloud rappers, as they get called on the internet. And it's, it's really weird because how people react is catering to me honestly like at least being on Athens because a lot of the people are more into that kind of like vibe to like that slow actually listening to lyrics Mm -hmm. versus like just hearing shit yelled at them (laughs) so you're not saying people you're not telling people to get get moving or jump you're not like let me hear you no I I do this fun game usually (laughs) do you sit down with a a cup of tea let's go (laughs) hi everybody I, I've done gimmicks Pathos. like that. <laughs> but my favorite is I do this thing where if I feel like I'm losing the audience attention, I'll just say, fuck whatever I'm performing right now. And I'll just, whoever is in front of me in the audience, I'll just be like, you, I'm handing you a dictionary, any word, give me any word you could ever think of. And then that's when everyone's like, what's this guy doing? And then they yell out any type of word, and then I just freestyle for three minutes off this word. And then every single time it brings the crowd back into like, oh my God, this guy's like, he's rapping. Like he's actually doing something. He's not just like nonsensically saying words that rhyme. Well, that's interesting because you're actually engaging the audience in part of the performance instead mm-hmm. of instead of demanding that they move the way you want them to. Oh yeah. Like you ever go to a metal show where the people aren't <laughs> moshing enough? Let's get this pit started. Open this up. I want to see you destroy. Wall of death. Right. And I saw a wall of death once. Scary. I I removed myself to the (laughs) rear. That was, no, no, thank you. I can't do that anymore. Uh, But yeah, when they're like demanding that people move, it's like, okay, if your performance and your music are not cutting it, Mm -mm. people aren't going to move. Like I saw Napalm Death live. Those guys have been putting out music for 30 years I think something like that those guys are all in their 50s and they still got the entire crowd going crazy 
there was there was a at the napalm death show I went to someone was like throwing glass bottles oh someone God. got there was a mosh pit the mosh pit was crazy this guy got like kicked in the head and and Barney Greenway just stopped he's like hang on a minute because he's he's British he's like hang on a minute <laughs> and then he just stop, he holds his hand up the band stops and someone comes in and they carry this guy out who'd gotten knocked out and as soon as he's out the door he's like what do I do and then they start up again and the whole crowd just goes nuts again it was just completely bonkers and it's because first of all their music is, is very I mean Barney Greenway sings mostly about political corruption mm-hmm. third world countries um, injustice of, of the government and he has the most fierce barking vocal delivery and even on stage he is just this he looks like a wild dog <laughs> and everyone they're all you know in their 50s but he gets the crowd to engage he's engaging with the crowd in a meaningful way yeah he's not just just trying to hurt the crowd with really loud guitar and yelling at them it's I'm, more of a like they know a, their audience right it's, well it, and it's also it, his lyrical style is a is a it's righteous indignation mm-hmm. so he'll start the song by saying this is about a housing tenement that caught on fire because the building owner violated code and it, <laughs> everyone was treated like a number smash a single digit and then you know everyone's like oh my god that's terrible and they get into that <laughs> and they start moshing like crazy so and then you know but the opener is some you know rip off of I don't know Whitechapel and mm-hmm. they're like come on jump no. no see I mean that it shows in every genre like the performers it, there's such like an it's archaic, but there's a way to go about making your live set seem natural and actually get people involved. And so many people, you know, force feed these gimmicks of like, hey, push your hands up and like, let's do this song. Um, <laughs> that was my worst white voice. Uh, that's like way white right there. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I, I see it all the time. Positively at li- suburban, Jacob. Yeah, just, howdy folks. Uh, <laughs> ahoy. Um but uh, yeah, no, I've, I've performed with a lot of people that just don't understand that, you know, the crowd is there to enjoy themselves. You should be there to enjoy yourselves. You're not talking to them in like some demeaning way of you're like, I'm on stage, you're in the crowd. Like it's supposed to be like this fun event for everyone. And you're just the person who's kind of like spreading the fun to everyone. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. And that's always how, that's why I love engaging the crowd. And like, I really grasp for their reactions. And if I, you know, a lot of my music also has funny punchlines and that's like, I, I thrive on that. So when I say a funny punchline and people start laughing, it's hard for me not to laugh along because it's, it, I don't care if I forget the next line. I'm too busy, like actually having fun in this mm-hmm. moment. And it shows versus the people who don't like look the crowd in their eyes or like don't feed off of whatever they're handing to the artist. Like it, it really matters. And you know, the performance you were just saying of, uh, it was napalm, napalm death, napalm death. That is such a cool name. <laughs> like they seem like they're straight engaging. They are, they're aware of what's going on around them mm-hmm. and it's, it's natural, but it's fun. And that's really what a performer needs to put on stage. Yeah. Do you ever freestyle within a song you've already established lyrically? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Does that happen often? Pretty often, yeah. Do you have a plan for like a set list when you go in? I mean, do you have like the instrumentals lined up and then you just, you kind of just go? Yeah. uh, It changes a lot though, depending on the crowd. Like uh, I performed at this festival um, the other month and it was kind of an electronic music festival, but they had some rappers in it. Uh, and it worked really well, surprisingly. I got a really good reaction out of it. But I could tell that the deep songs I had on the on my playlist, I was like, they 
they don't need this right now. Skip this next song. Mm-hmm. I might get back to it, but it, you just got to be aware of what how people are reacting. You know, it's I feel typical human conditioning, but a lot of people just pr- go to perform what they planned, and they don't realize that you don't have to do that. You can go with whatever you know trail you want. You mm-hmm. can freestyle, have fun. <laughs> yeah, and also it's it's you're not demanding that the audience have a certain reaction. It's yeah, I don't know. I've been to I just been to so many shows where it's like, dude, shut up. You're just not good enough to get the crowd mm-hmm. moving. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I went to uh Most Def and Talib Kweli. You know, I'm familiar with them. I haven't listened to a whole lot of Most Def. Legendary hip hop heads. They had a legendary group together called Black Star. They made like one album and it's one of the biggest hip hop albums of hip hop's history and they did a um a show in London where they got back together for that show sold out within minutes. So then they're like, all right, we're, we'll do a second show. As soon as I saw that, like three minutes, I bought a ticket right away. And the amazing thing about their show is they did their songs. And at the end, we're all calling for an encore, but they don't give us an encore. Instead, most Def just comes out. The DJ starts playing some like old soul classics. And he just stood on stage for like 20 minutes, just dancing to the these soul classics and it was incredible like even though we wanted more of their music like him just dancing along oh the crowd reacted so nice they were just like fuck yeah everyone was just like having a moment of this pure bliss no interruption as an encore it was anything i've never seen that happen in a live show before that's awesome oh yeah you ever listened to uh, rafael sadiq i haven't no oh you might like him how about uh, tony 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 no 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 Ooh. Okay, I'll put, I'll, put you, I'll put you on to him. Uh, he's like a... Rafael Sadiq is kind of like the modern Smokey Robinson, hmm. if you will. It's definitely R&B. Uh, he was really mm-hmm. big in the 90s, but he... Uh, when we're done here, I'll, sh- I'll show you like a music video. Sweet. But when I saw him live, it was at the Electric Factory in Philly, which is not a terribly good mm-hmm. venue. And uh, he came out and was doing all these great soul songs, and the whole crowd is loving it. I was one of probably five white people there. It's the first <laughs> time I had that experience. And uh, when it came time for the encore, he comes out and he's like, you know, playing his guitar, and then he starts like taking his clothes off. So like he was wearing a suit, and he's like taking off his suit jacket, and then he's taking off his shirt, and then it, while he's playing this song, and then someone just comes up and grabs him and pulls him off stage. So it was kind of like this rehearsed like. He would love to play more music, but he's just feeling it too much. We need to, we need to protect you from you know too much nudity tonight. It was really that was really a very fun show though. Yeah, I think you'd like him. That's intense. I love that. He's got like this really cool old soul groove. Like, yeah, it's really good. He actually got Jay Z to rap on one of his tracks. Um, oh, that's sick. Yeah, I'll put you onto that. I think you'll like it. Yeah, please do. Did you um, see this HBO documentary, The Defiant Ones? Mm-mm. So I only saw part one. It's a four-part documentary about Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre, their relationship. And when I was in Denver this summer, there was a movie theater, uh, Alamo Draft House, and they were they were giving away free tickets for the screening. I was like, oh, dude, I'll check it out. So in the first part of it, you're seeing you see the earliest like footage of Dr. Dre performing ever, like his first public appearance there's actual video footage of it if i'm not mistaken and he comes out wearing purple scrubs as if he's a doctor okay with a purple like surgical mask and he gets up there and has two turntables and he does a dance remix of mr postman oh my god and it was awesome and i was like because i remember listening to that my mom had an had a motown classics Mm -hmm. cassette when we were growing up 
I remember like loving Mr. Postman, that being like my favorite song when I was a kid, and seeing Dr. Dre dressed <laughs> in all purple sometime, you know, eons ago. Remixing that for a dance crowd was was just it was it was amazing. That sounds insane. I need to see the rest of the doc because it was it was pretty cool to see it. Was it just a promo? It was so it's a four part. Oh, so it's just like one of the parts. Yeah, so I saw. Yeah, I guess it's on HBO now, but um, yeah, I saw part one. It was like an advanced screening. And they had a they had a talk back afterwards, remotely with Jimmy Iovine. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's awesome. Like I'm I'm getting so into that style <laughs> of like sound design. So how did you how did you transfer from? I mean, even you really didn't really transfer. You just added something else to your play. How did you get into filmmaking? Filmmaking. Uh... Well, kind of music and filmmaking strat. I was writing both of those. Those are, I guess, would I would say like my two biggest passions. Because filmmaking, I got into very young, younger than music. I was like seven years old in my cul-de-sac with my, you know, my friends in the neighborhood. And every day, we I had a camcorder and we would just record a movie, like a full hour long. We would spend weeks on this, and then we'd all sit down, plug in the film, watch it. And then we'd be like, oh, that was cool. Let's shoot something over this tomorrow. So this tape probably has, this one cassette tape has seen like eight films we've shot. And because we would just keep recording over it. And we did like all the editing linearly on camera mm-hmm. because we were young and I, I didn't know better. <laughs> but, uh, and so, I mean, I started doing that very young. And then music just kind of came second nature also. I did uh, band in middle school. So I like. Would you play trumpet? I I wanted to do percussion because I I loved percussion way more, but uh, I could sadly only do trumpet due to financial reasons. Mm. But uh, I didn't mind because I really love jazz. So it, once I got to jazz band time, it was really fun. Nice. Yeah. So you did your undergrad. You majored in film production, media, but it was pretty much the same ballpark. Okay. And then you jumped, you're now in the MFA program mm-hmm. after taking a little bit of, did, did you actually intentionally take time off between? I wasn't planning on grad school. Uh, as soon as I graduated, I moved to London and tried to find work out there. And that was stupid because I did not get work out there and I became broke very quickly. Uh, and then after- well, How long were you out there? Uh, this time around, it was like four months. I spent three months there the year previously, but um, yeah, I was like, I'll give myself three months to find a job and a place to live. Couldn't find either. Uh, Just moved back to Athens, and then I started thinking about grad school, Uh, and I worked on a feature film that came through the, the film program here at OU, and kind of that experience is what pushed me to apply, especially back at OU, because mm-hmm. the people I worked with really encouraged me to. Yeah, when I saw you on Willett's set, I was like, who, who is this guy? <laughs> I've never seen him before. What's going on? I, well, see, I had the pleasure of meeting Willett's as well. I mean, the majority of those people on that feature film. What happened, Ashley? Is that what it was? Yeah. The is one that still in post right now? Yeah, uh, John Coy, he was the uh, camera assistant um, on that film. He is the colorist right now. And apparently okay. there's an edit, and he's he has the color right now doing it. So it should be finishing soon, hopefully. I'd love to see it <laughs> and see what actually came over that movie. But What was your uh, position on that film? I was DIT, uh, just backing up and logging footage. and then What does DIT stand for? 
it's like it stands for like two different things but the main one is digital imaging technician but then there's another one that's like data something but either way i just logged the footage and organized mm-hmm. it for the editor um, but then they hired an editor and then I got promoted and I was also assistant editor. So then I actually like got to play with the footage a little bit. Oh, nice. and I, I put together dailies every now and then, but do you like, what, what, what's your favorite part of the filmmaking process? Originally it was editing which is why I was like really excited to do that. But once I started working with the editor, I realized that the editor doesn't have much input into like, like the final creative image. It's and I kind of got detoured from that because I uh, maybe my ego's too large, but I just wanted to have more of an impact in a film, and like no one remembers the editors. Everyone knows like Walter Murch, and we only know Walter Murch because we're filmmakers and we're forced to know Walter Murch. Have you seen the conversation? The conversation? Yeah, I haven't. I read his book, but that's I haven't oh, seen anything with. You're, okay, Francis Ford Coppola did the conversation in between. The Godfathers, and it's got uh, oh man, what is his name? I'm blanking right now. Royal Tenenbaum. Who was that? Oh, uh, goodness <laughs> gracious, Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, I, it's I, yeah. benign to me I'm, right now. I'm gonna I'm gonna actually look it up because that's that's gonna really bother me. We do have the power of the internet. Yeah, and I try not to use it when I'm recording just because it's sort of obnoxious. But uh, standby viewers. Yeah, no, don't, don't even stand by. Uh, you know, it turns out that this guy, I'm going to find out who he is here in a, in a hot second. Um, it's taking way too long. Way too long. Hence the standby viewers. <laughs> Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman. So Gene Hackman apparently is like a former boxer. Oh, I was wow. listening to this uh, podcast by this uh, this stuntman slash MMA fighter <laughs> named Tate Fletcher, who's in like every action movie mm-hmm. now. And he was talking about going to this amateur boxing match somewhere like in New Mexico. And he's like, oh, did you see Gene Hackman the other day? They're like, wait, what? He's like, yeah, during the preliminaries, he just was in the third row just watching the fight. Like, did you say hi? It's like, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I didn't know if I should. Like, I, <laughs> turns out he was a boxer. Like, he was a badass. It's like, oh, okay. But uh, Gene Hackman plays this um, surveillance expert <laughs> using like recording like audio equipment. So he gets hired. As a private, not really a private investigator, but uh, he's investigating someone who's supposed to be like having an affair, mm-hmm. and he's slowly, like throughout the movie, like starts losing his mind <laughs> because he keeps playing the same audio recording over and over again. But it sounds different to him depending on what he knows about the situation. Oh wow! Yeah, it's and so and it was entirely recorded by Walter Murch. So he did the sound design, the sound editing, the sound recording, all the ADR everything what a pro and that movie is so tight and perfect and hopefully john butler will show it to you on those massive speakers in the peterson sound studio i'll I'll hold off on watching it until then (laughs) yeah because when you actually get those those speakers you can tell if you're paying attention to sound design like wait a minute that's a different microphone or like wait that sounds omnidirectional um how did they get that And, and then you start they start playing around with the editing of the sound and then like it's it's a brilliant film. It reminds me of Blowout. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. It's like a really early John Travolta film where he's a sound engineer guy and they're 
trying to put together the perfect mix for this horror movie they're shooting, but the scream just sounds like terrible. So they send him out, and he's out in the field kind of just like with his boom microphone, picking up different noises, very directional. And then he picks up this car in the distance, and he's like, it sounds really weird, and then it drives into the lake that he's near. And he goes and he saves this girl, and then there's this whole like scheme of like they're plotting murder on this girl, but he caught it on this audio. It, it's this whole story. It's Is it pre- good? Uh, I enjoyed it, yeah. We had to study in our undergrad, so I'm guilty of that, but... <laughs> It, it was actually pretty good. I think about it every now and then just for the sound design aspect of it because it was really interesting how they did that. That's mm-hmm. something that I'm, I'm really going to have to do a lot of independent study on. But yeah, the conversation you will really enjoy. But yeah, we have to, you know, I'm taking art of editing class with Tom right now and In the Blink of an Eye, written by Walter Murch. Yeah, that's the book I've tests. read. It's yeah. a great reference for editing it's crazy when you, you talk about like the philosophy of editing because <laughs> when you get really deep into filmmaking the casual viewer has no idea how deep it actually no, goes it's insane the amount of stuff that goes into it it's i, I really want to get tom in here to actually <laughs> just have a conversation i might need to wait until the end of that class where i have a little bit more of a baseline of understanding but you know, I, I finished my film too from last year, and then Tom takes a look at it and gives me like fifteen notes. And I just <laughs> look at it and I go, <sighs> "He's right, right." Curses! <laughs> he gave me like twenty notes, and five of them I didn't agree with, but the other fifteen I was like, "Those are good notes." He's good. I hate when. God, I thought I was done. Ooh. That's another problem too. Is like you never know when you're done. Though. So you edited. Megan's film yeah. Reunion, right? Mm-hmm. What was it like editing a... Well, tell our listeners what this film was about. Uh, it was pretty much this... I don't know if it would be giving away by saying vampire film, but it's a vampire film. It's too late now. Uh, it, it's kind of an action-driven, but it, it follows a, a family coming back together, hence the, re, the title Reunion, um, but it, it takes place in this weird kind of post-apocalyptic world. It, it might not be post-apocalyptic. Either way, it's obscured from reality. So it's really interesting to follow. Um, but yeah, no, I AD'd and I edited that. And I, I mean, I was really excited to edit it because I hate that word, edited. Edited <laughs> too many syllables. But um, Chopped. Yeah. I chopped it. I, I think because there's one of the first years whose name is Edit, so I, oh. I, I mentally think like, no, edit, 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 it. <laughs> just anyway, sorry, that was a weird tangent. But um, <laughs> I, n- I never like got to edit uh, action before. And mm-hmm. there's action scenes within that. So I was like really excited to play with different pacings. And I kind of learned that I, I focused too much on continuity. And like Tom Hayes sat down as well and kind of gave me a brief like rundown of some things I should change. And you know, continuity is thrown out the window when it comes to action because people's eyes are going to be moving so fast that you don't have to like do perfect cuts. You have to like just make it fast. And I, I mean, it worked uh, with the second draft that I put together. But is it is it fast, but in a way where you can see what's going on? Yeah, like the punches landing, mm-hmm. the actual. Yeah, that was a that was an interesting film to work on. I didn't realize, I mean, getting to work next to John Coy and Dylan uh, was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Just because they would take the time. And this is, I've been really fortunate Mm -hmm. because in the film school environment, you get to meet people who aren't 
much further along than you are as far as your your learning is concerned but they're very willing and open to teach you everything they're doing so john was telling me like why we were putting this gel on the light dylan was telling me why we were using this as a fill Mm -hmm. um and there's the, the, the lens choice. I was talking to Matt Love the other day about like lens choices for certain like emotional impact mm-hmm. or whatever. But the th- I really want to make an action movie. Well, now you, you've seen it kind of behind the scenes. I mean, you acted in it roughly, so you have a good idea. I extra in it. it, it that's <laughs> acting. Extras act. Yes, you're <laughs> right. You're right. I shouldn't be so self-deprecating. Uh, yeah, that was a last minute thing. Did you hear how that whole thing happened? I'm not. No. It was like it was. Uh, so we're shooting over spring break, mm-hmm. right? So automatically, I'm like, okay, I'd love to take a week off and recuperate. But then I thought, yeah, but I get to work on a vampire action movie, and <laughs> ah, that opportunity might not come along again. And I, I just wanted to get as much experience as possible. It was mm-hmm. like I'm going to volunteer for every production because I, I liked Megan's f- first year film. I was like, mm-hmm. hey, I, I'd like to work with her. And it was the same thing with Willits. Um, it was the same thing with Matt Love and I introduced myself to all of them saying hey I'd like to work with you guys and then I volunteered to work on their sets but for Megan's film it was like three days before we started shooting she I get this text from her hey we need an extra to play a guard in a fight scene (laughs) do you think you might be interested and I text back I think I might (laughs) but in my head I'm, I'm like oh my god this is awesome I get to be a stuntman but it was also a grip. So the whole time I have to not all, um, was that key grip? I was key grip. I oh, up, you were key grip. That's yeah. right. I was originally hired as a grip. And then so <laughs> four days before I get I get the text, hey, would you mind key gripping on this? And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll take that responsibility even though I don't know what I'm doing. And then like the next day it was like, hey, can you be in the film <laughs> too? And I was just like, okay. And then it's like, hey, can you come to set? an hour early to go over fight rehearsal I'm like what and there was another day where I had to do fight rehearsal with Brian because mm-hmm. safety issues obviously oh, yeah. so I'm, I'm tacking on all these extra hours that I never <laughs> intended to All I thought I was just going to hang out and be someone's grip and I'd learned a lot I'd learned the ropes well you but got thrown in the deep end I did I really did and then well the day we shot that fight scene the sewer main broke in central classroom yeah. where we were supposed to shoot so we have to find a completely new location on the day while it's raining mm-hmm. and we have not choreographed this scene for the location in which we ended up. It worked out better though. It was amazing. We found a way better location in like 10 minutes. It was insane. Whose suggestion was that? That was, was Brian's because Brian? Brian knew the theater school. I was like so stressed at that point as the AD. I was just like, we're not, we're going to get off schedule so hard. <laughs> well, I completely, we, we, I pulled up the grip truck mm-hmm. and we unloaded everything. And then I think you told me probably like, all right, load up the truck again. We're moving locations. And I was like, what? Say you, that, what? You, you don't even know the half of it. I'm sure. You weren't on a Huckleberry. Oh, yeah? Oh, oh God. That, the day on Reunion was a piece of cake compared to some of the, the fallbacks we had in Huckleberry. Yeah. There was, okay, I'm, there was one day, it was the start of the shoot, where we had to shoot exteriors of a school. They told me the night before... Um, the director and the producer told me the night before and say, like, all right, the, the Athens Public Library looks school enough. It, it should work. We'll go there. So I was like, okay, send out the call sheets to everyone, including like the 16 extras that we lug around. And everyone showed up. We start getting ready. 
And I'm like, you know, this is kind of a, a, a problem. I'm telling the director, I'm like, the, the highway is right there. Audio will definitely get some of this audio. And he's like, it's okay, we'll make it work. As soon as we say that, this truck pulls up with a bed that carries two lawnmowers. And I'm like, <laughs> this isn't going to... I asked him, I'm like, how long are you guys going to be mowing here? And they're like, oh, until like 2 p.m. I'm like, all right. Oh my God. So I tell the director, I'm like, we got to find a new location in five minutes. Producer starts calling up some places, but he's scatterbrained. He has enough to worry about. It's Patrick. Mm-hmm. Patrick has a whole buttload of stuff that he has to work on, but he now he's like calling all these schools, and we couldn't get permission to anywhere. And then he hears back from a place in Nelsonville, and they're like, yeah, you can shoot here. No big deal. Um, so we're like, okay, let's go uh, to Nelsonville Public School in uh, – near uh Stewart, ohio it's like 20 30 minutes away we shot one of reunions first days in Stewart. so we we drove all the way to the school unload all the oh, extra yeah, yeah. the know. extras followed us there so all the extras were like yeah we'll drive there it's fine i mean the guy from the athens messenger was coming to write a paper and he showed up and we we're like you gotta go to the second location now Everyone got here. The L.A. actor who's SAG got there with his mom. We start blocking outside of the school. Everything's going great. Equipment's almost set up. Steady cam's almost calibrated. Patrick comes up to me. He's like, Jacob, come over here. We got to talk. I'm like, what? He's like, I fucked up. I'm like, Patrick, what did you do? And he was basically just like, we don't have permission to shoot here. I got schools mixed up. It's not Nelsonville school. It's in Nelsonville. It's York High School. And I'm just like, that's like 30 minutes away from here. Can we, can, we're set up. Can we shoot here? And then as soon as I say that, the administrator comes out. He's like, you guys got to leave. I'm sorry. And we're like an hour and a half behind schedule. Oh, no. And I have to tell everyone, get all the equipment packed up, tell all the extras, hey, we're actually going 30 minutes away from here. Uh, tell the the messenger guy, yeah, never mind, we're leaving. Um, the SAG actor and his mom, we all had to go 30 minutes all the way to Nelsonville to shoot at York High School. So the third location of the day, have no footage, two and a half hours behind schedule, but we got out on time. I moved some stuff around in the script. We shot inside York High School. The people there were so nice, so, so nice. The nicest people I've ever had to deal with, mm-hmm. but it, it worked out. But that fucking day. <laughs> it's brutal. Those oh. kind of nightmares. That's why I don't want to AD ever in my life. It's because I don't want to be the one having to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, heavy lies the crown, right? Yeah. That's, uh, that's not easy. So what, what kind of um, projects are you kicking around right now? Or can you talk about them? I don't, I don't mind talking about Do you have them. a particular... Um, what's the word? Um... Um, what kind of ideas do you like to explore in your filmmaking? Well, my personal favorite scripts are like Charlie Kaufman scripts. I love really like existential, thought-provoking kind of stuff. I mean, I guess it reflects on my music also. But uh, I just love stuff that by the end of it, people walk away not saying, that's such a good movie, but more just like, what the fuck did I just watch? I'm depressed. I need to read about this film a little bit. Like, just... That kind of film. Okay. My my first film, I think, um, isn't going to reflect that much. It's going to be very Vonnegut-esque in the humor of it, because I also have to like indulge in super black humor with all my films. Otherwise, it's just not me at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my film two, I have like a huge idea for, and I'm 
pretty deep in the ballpark of what I want to shoot for that. Okay. And it's very David Lynchian cinematography, very, you know, Twin Peaks dream-esque stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ultimate tone and moral people will get out of it is just like, holy fuck, who am I? <laughs> so you want to fuck with people? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I love playing on people's psychology. I'm a sociopath. Why? <laughs> Why do you do that, Jacob? You're such a nice guy. You're such a nice boy. Well, I hate happy endings. I think they're... Always? For most of the time. I love bittersweet happy endings, like uh, the Steve Carell film, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. It's the most depressing ending, but it's also the happiest ending that there could be, pretty mm-hmm. much. Uh, Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind, Charlie Kaufman film. Doesn't have the happiest ending, but it's still pretty happy. I, you know, that's one of those films that everyone loves that I, I just, just not into. Man. Really? Well, I guess I'm just not into romantic movies. My girlfriend gives me a hard time about this because um, she wants me to watch musicals a lot. Which uh, she's listening to this, she's probably rolling her eyes. But <laughs> <laughs> no, the um, the most okay. Well. The Royal Tenenbaums, bring mm. that up. I think that's a very romantic movie. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite movies ever. But it doesn't portray romance as being some kind of something easy. You know what I mean? The whole no. thing is completely... Everyone's relationships are so jacked up in that movie. Oh, yeah. It's a you know it's a battle. So that's kind of like a realistic, even though it's a very highly stylized film. Um, but I, I hate, hate with, with almost every fiber of my being films like Love Actually. Mm-hmm. My sisters made me watch that one Christmas. Oh, and yeah. I, and they're just going, oh, this is, oh, my God, it's so... And I, I just looked at them going, like, we're not related. See, we're that, not related. What? But you didn't get that same tone from Eternal Sunshine? Because that was definitely not, like, a happy, like, lovey-dovey couple. It was twisted. <laughs> yeah, it was, but it just didn't connect with me for some reason. I don't know. I mean, there's some movies that I, I know are, are objectively good that mm-hmm. I just I just am not into. That happens to me a lot. So, I don't know. I mean, I get that. Uh, I personally love romantic comedies, but only the ones that aren't so uh, cliche. God, I hate most like, romantic... Like, give me another one. An- another romantic comedy that I find completely cliche? No, the one that you like. Oh, another one that I like. Yeah. Uh, well, the two that I named, uh, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, is kind of a romantic comedy, but it's super dark. Mm-hmm. Um, another one that I actually can stand is 500 Days of Summer, just because it's kind of a reverse rom-com, because it's about a couple breaking up versus getting together. Okay. Um, but there's not many that I can stand aside from that, unless it's kind of like... I don't know. If it has an interesting aesthetic, like I kind of like Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist purely I because of like that movie. I, I purely only like it because of the couple itself. It's not the typical romance couple. It's just uh-huh. these two indie hipsters that fall in love. Right. And I'm like, I get that. You're in New York. It's fun. Like, Man, if I you know, only had the budget to live that kind of lifestyle. Right. You know, you know what I've gotten in a lot of trouble? Not really trouble, but people look at me like I've committed sacrilege when I tell them <laughs> I didn't like Scott Pilgrim. Ooh, yeah, that is. I mean, that's a cult classic movie, though. You you don't have to like that. I just don't like it. it it's so. It, I don't I'm, like it. I, I enjoy it, but I'm not gonna try to. I haven't seen Star Wars, and I get shit for that. So I'm not gonna push any type of. You should definitely know this. Thank you, Jacob. Or like this. Thank you. I I, I appreciate that. Because um, I don't do what people tell me to do. <laughs> <laughs> I do I do what I want. I was thinking about that the other day, where. Um, there's one classmate I have, I'm not going to name names, who every time 
they bring up a film that I haven't seen and they'll a- they'll ask me as if I've seen it. I'll say, no, no, I haven't seen it. And they go, what? I can't believe you haven't seen that. And I always want to respond. It's kind of loud out here, isn't it? Do you hear that? That motorcycle. motorcycle. Um, I haven't fully soundproofed the studio yet. Well, the window's also open. Yes, that doesn't the window, help the window is open. <laughs> um, no AC. So what I want to say when I get that kind of grief is, mm. well, you know, I do things besides watch movies. <laughs> which is a really snarky way to but, um, respond and not a nice way to do it. So I just say, yeah, I haven't gotten around to it yet. Because for me, I hung out with film geeks mm-hmm. in college and they introduced me to a lot of films. I wouldn't have seen half the films, half the quirky art films that I've mm-hmm. seen if it weren't for these nerds in college mm-hmm. that I watched the films with. So I, I have them to thank for introducing me to to Charlie Kaufman, to introducing mm-hmm. me to, like I, I found Quentin Tarantino on my own but then I didn't know anything about Robert Rodriguez. They're like, oh, you got to watch this guy. And then like David Lynch. Didn't know David Lynch until I got to college. Didn't know David Cronenberg before I got to college. So, Dang. I mean, and I, I got into Fritz Lang and like German Expressionism and that kind of stuff. Um, and that was all because I hung out with these film geeks. Mm-hmm. But for me, I was like, hey, let's 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 go make one of these. Let's go make a film. Mm-hmm. And they would, they would be like, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, let's do it. And they wouldn't do it. So they stopped at the, the the abstract kind of theory part of it. But wouldn't it be cool if... And when you don't actually make films, it's easier to criticize them. Oh, yeah. So I always wait a little while before I really criticize a film because I know how difficult it is. I mean, I got, you know, working on Departure this summer. It is a marathon with, you know, a hundred pound rucksack on your back <laughs> for like a month. Oh, yeah. That's not... Easy. It's only fun talking about it in retrospect. Like, that's not fun while you're doing it. But then you get you know these film nerds that can have like discussions for hours about the intricacies of blah blah blah. And I look at them and I just go, I, I'm going to go to the gym, and I'm going to go write something, and then I'm going to go work on a film because that's actually active, not passive. And the intellectualization of like film studies. And I'm probably going to get some grief from my film <laughs> studies friends about this. But there's like, for me, I get to a point where I'm like, okay, we're, we're spinning our wheels here. Mm-hmm. We need to, I want to produce something. I don't want to just sit around and talk about movies all day. Yeah. So that's what, for me, why I had to start making films. Why I wanted to come to film well, school. That's really it's what like, separates the MAs from the MFAs. Yeah. Is. And, and they can give me, mm-hmm. you know, a 60 page dissertation on like the opening scene from Blade Runner. And that's, that's great. That takes a lot of brain power oh, yeah. and a lot of time that I don't have because I want to make a film that's as good as Blade Runner exactly. in the future. I mean, that's a pretty lofty ambition. but Yeah, good luck. Yeah, exactly. That's... But seriously, I'm, um, soon I'm going to have uh, Sophia on the podcast. Oh, and, yeah. and she you know, teaches sci-fi film classes and um, like post-humanism and <laughs> cybernetics. I'm like, okay, she's done the research. I'm, I can just talk to her and, and learn about it instead of doing the research myself. That's shortcuts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I don't know. It's it's interesting, but the the yeah, film studies classes for me, I just I get really antsy because I learn a lot. I mean, if you have a class with Louis, you know, I've only had the only film studies classes I've had have been with Louis, and every class there's at least one sentence that comes out of that man's mouth where I'm like, whoa, <laughs> oh, that's deep. I never thought of it that way. That's really interesting. But, you know, the rest of the time, I'm itching to go out and do something. So my coffee habit went through the roof <laughs> when I got to film school. My God, I was down to one cup of coffee a day. I got here, and I carry around a thermos full of black coffee, and I just drink it throughout the day because I, I have to sit still for three hours at a time. Well, see, this is it's brutal. This is a weird thing with, like, how different film is from other arts. 
Because, like, so you listen to lots of music, I'd imagine, lots of yes. metal. Do you make metal? No, I was, tr- I did, I did opera vocal training for mm-hmm. a year. I never performed live. So what happened? Oh, that was that was actually you still weird. indulge heavily in you know listening and probably critiquing the music. I but sing you, in the shower every day. Well, I hardly think that's equivalent <laughs> to making Blade Runner. It's not. It's not. No, I I uh, this okay. The second time I I didn't make it into film school, I got really depressed, mm-hmm. and I needed to. I knew I needed to do something because I was working in a really stressful restaurant, and I I did not like working there. And you know I was going to the gym. And I was making progress in the gym, which was which was great. T- tangible progress mm-hmm. is so important. That's something I learned in the last couple of years. Is like it doesn't matter what you're doing. Do something where you can actually measure your progress. Oh yeah, no, I agree. E- even if it's watering your plants, like <laughs> if you can see measurable progress based on your actions, then you're, you're living. Yeah, you know what I mean. So uh, all I had was. Um, the gym, and you know that, that's stressful as well because the way I lift. If you ever come to the gym with me, it's 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 a little intense. <laughs> and I was going to like this hardcore powerlifting gym. Do you like where, scream while you do it? Um, I grunt a little bit. I don't scream. I think it's a little obnoxious. Um, well, I don't know. I was just trying to think of the most obnoxious. Can you imagine me screaming at the ping center? Yes. Everyone would just be like, "Yes, I could see that." No, I don't do that. <laughs> I don't do that. Um, but. So I, I signed up my, I used to work with this guy who's a, a, a vocal coach in Philly who studied opera. Mm-hmm. Um, he also has a drag queen alter ego called Cookie Diorio. Cookie Diorio. This guy, Corey Walker, Corey, if you're listening, I love you, uh, is one of the most amazing personalities I've ever met. And I went to this one show where he was in his drag queen alter ego. Now, Corey's like six foot two. Very dark-skinned black man <laughs> with this amazing tenor opera voice. Like, he's just powerful. I've seen him perform a couple times. He's like, whoa. Like, he, he's wearing heels. So now he's like 6'6". Six, six, and he's got like the fake hips and the massive hair and the huge gaudy makeup. And I turned the corner. It's like the Unitarian Church in Philly. And I just freeze. <laughs> and Corey goes, hi, Robert. And I just went... Corey, because <laughs> I'd never been that close to a drag queen before. I, I, I don't, I, I don't go to drag shows. I don't, I don't know the culture. Uh, and he did an entire show where he had opera singers singing art songs, like German and French art mm-hmm. songs in the original languages, acted out with sock puppets. That is incredible. While he was the MC. What? Yes. Oh goodness! And they, I chore- love it. they choreographed the sock puppet part of it. So it was actually well, naturally. It, they just it was telling a story, and the person doing the sock puppet was singing the song behind the curtain. Oh. It was my, it was amazing. So I signed up for classes with him, <laughs> and uh, I started taking opera classes. And, and his comment was, "Robert, I think that you have a powerful voice, and I think that you don't know how powerful your voice can be because you haven't developed it." So then we, I would go once a week, and we would go through the scales, and he would find music that fit my vocal range. Um, and there were a couple times I went in completely hungover, and he says, and, I'm, and my voice is down here. And he goes, okay, let's explore the low end uh, if you're not feeling well, Robert. I'm like, okay, so we you know, work on that part of the range. So then I went to the Arnold Classic mm-hmm. in Columbus, Ohio, to see the Strongman competition. This is, what, three years ago? Something like that. Because I was doing a lot of Strongman training at that point. And... 
it just my desire to perform as a singer evaporated. I don't know what it was. Like I went there, mm-hmm. I met a couple powerlifters that I looked up to, um, took a lot of pictures, had a great time, saw the strongman competition where you know like people that are like six foot eight and four hundred pounds are lifting oh, yeah. a thousand. It's like giants walk the earth. Then <laughs> they meet in Columbus once a year. So I got back from that and I called Corey and I was just like, I was like, Corey, I just, I, I don't have it anymore. I, I just, some switch in my brain just turned off. And I think it was like, I had done it for a year and I reached the point where it was like put up or shut up because Corey was asking me to do a recital. And I realized I just, I just didn't want to. It was a, it ran its course. I learned a lot about my voice, learned how to manipulate it, learned what I'm capable of, learned vocal placement, which is really important. I, oh, yeah. I, I'd never learned that before. Uh, but it was just, I'm glad I did it because I know that that's not something I want to do anymore. But I had to do it. To like know. I needed to t- take that year to learn that about myself before I could put it aside and say, okay, I might use that in the future, but that's not what I want to focus on. Oh, yeah. And it just kept coming back to filmmaking. Like Corey said, hey, we're, we have another show. Um, would you film it? We can't pay you, but we'd like, we want to record it because it's a premiere of a new short opera about Walt Whitman. And I was like, yeah, sure. So I got these the two cheapest cameras I could get. <laughs> um, I bought them. I bought this laptop um, just to do this because I knew like I wanted to learn something. And I, I did a two camera. I had one locked off and one where I was following the action. And I chopped it together and gave it to them. And they gave me a nice bottle of Three Philosophers uh, beer nice. from uh, Amagang Brewery. And shout out, shout out to Amagang. I don't, I don't know anyone from Amagang, <laughs> but <laughs> but. I put that in my portfolio when I applied to grad school again and Tom commented on it. You know, he said, Hey, I'd get at least one more camera in there for doing a live musical performance. I was like, okay, good to know. But it was like, I, even though that was unbelievably stressful and I'll tell you some other time, the story leading up to that day, (laughs) it is an epic tale of misery and chaos, but I filmed it after the worst week of my life. Like I woke up on a Saturday and like went and filmed this opera after dealing with the most stressful week of my life. Anyway, uh, but that was another thing where it's like, I was like I need to do something I need to do something mm-hmm. film related so I did and then I edited a music video it's like okay I just needed to keep working then I started the podcast it was just okay keep working keep working and now I'm here and I can work on fun projects mm-hmm. where I'm learning from people who are as committed as I am and it was so weird when I first like started meeting the people that I like working with where I'm like you know I'm thinking about doing this this and this and I'm like okay what day what time <laughs> and they show up and you're like oh oh because for years like I was saying, my film geek friends, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll do it. And it never happened. But here, when you're in this creative, like really intense creative environment. Oh, yeah. And you're around people who want, who get excited about the same stuff. Then it's like, let's go, dude. Oh, Let, let's make something worth getting into a festival. Your drive combines. Yeah. I mean, me and my friend, we lived together when we made most of our music. He's since moved away. He graduated with me, and he, he's in Columbus now. And now it's just like, I don't know. I don't have as much of a drive to make music, and I want to focus on film. And I've kind of sticked, like, I, I visited him, and we cranked out, like, five songs in a night. And then, like, the next week, I was just like, all right, I got to make some stuff by myself. And, like, it, so I, I'm getting there. But it's so much easier when you're around other people who are musicians or, you know, filmmakers in your metaphor. Mm-hmm. Just, like, when you're together and you're all, like, just putting your drive together to make something, it's so much easier to have hopes for it, to evolve from it. It's, and you, you learn accidentally too. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's the other thing. Or like, like the kind of rec- it was really funny. I was uh, talking to John Coy because I was like, so what, what was your kind of inspiration for how you want to shoot reunion? 
And he said, well, you know, I've been watching John Wick, mm-hmm. um, Daredevil, Haywire with Gina Carano, and The Raid. And I'm like, I've seen all of those except Daredevil. So then I start watching Daredevil and I start seeing like, the, I start paying attention to the lighting. Like, how mm-hmm. are they getting that backlight? What's coming through the window? And so, and you're just learning this tangentially. And then he's recommending all this other cool sci-fi I should probably check out. You're like, nice, nice. I'll work with John again. Cool. But the the one thing I learned when I was in restaurants for like, I think it was seven or eight years. Let's say eight years. Is that when I was working in restaurants and around restaurant people all the time, you're learning constantly about beer, wine, and food. Because mm-hmm. what they like to do is go out to eat and go to nice places and go on tours and like learn about this, learn about that. So if you're around the right industry people in the mm-hmm. restaurant, you become an industry professional. So I knew, I've, I've kind of gotten rid of all that knowledge to make <laughs> filmmaking knowledge, but but it's it's a, you have to surround yourself with this kind of people. Yeah. You have to have a good team. I was asking Willis, I said, what is the one piece of advice you would give me for making my film here? And he said, pick a good team yeah that's like the number one thing honestly it's amazing and the, the culture of the set is another thing that that I, I really noticed on uh on departure because Arter is a very friendly outgoing guy and then Alyssa is also very calm and like mm-hmm. very cool like she was able to keep control of that set without raising her voice because she didn't, wow, she didn't speak. Un- she didn't like actually tell someone to do something unless it was important. So it was like, okay, it wasn't like, oh, Alyssa's talking. It was like, no, no, Alyssa's talking. Like, pay attention. Something needs to happen here. So it was, you know, even like when we had the like the the truck crashing incident. incident. I mean, even through all that, they were just very calm. No one freaked out. They like did everything by the numbers. They talked to the right people, and then they moved on with the shooting day. And that like calmness under pressure and that being able to work with personalities mm-hmm. is like, that's one of the biggest hurdles for me. And I've talked about it on the show before is managing personalities when you're directing. Like, that's tough. Oh, yeah. Because some personalities like don't mesh with my personality. No, <laughs> but you need that person to play that, that character. Right. Or even, <laughs> even like, yeah, talking to actors, like actors respond to direction in different ways. I mean, I, I was working on this one project for, uh, my directing actors class mm-hmm. and I had three actresses and one of them needed no direction at all because her role required very little it was entirely timing based so as soon as I figured out the timing with her she naturally just filled out the character the other actress had a tendency to overact mm. so I had to have her just take by take slowly bring it down slowly bring it down or convey this with your eyes mm-hmm. convey this with your voice don't convey it with your body language we're not on a stage we're not projecting there's a camera here then another actress the more i directed her the worse her performance got and when i told her to go entirely on instinct was the take i ended up using and that's just three actresses in this tiny little five minute scene and you i had to adjust with each individual yeah it's amazing the, the complexity that goes into that and then you know you can sit there puffing your pipe watching <laughs> your films and go mm, terrible performance by his and he's like hey come on shut shut up you don't know like you get, don't try know. it try getting on set it was really fascinating on departure was watching the differences between daniel shah dusty and sami how all their directing styles were different that was fascinating see i was curious like originally when they when i was told about the project i was really curious to see how they were going to go about doing that they each directed one. So this film, one Departure. Character. Yeah, they each is four characters. It was four writers and directors. And 
they each director directed one particular character's story. And there were a couple overlapping scenes where they decided, okay, I'm taking care of this one, you're taking care of that one. But it was really cool watching them because, you know, they knew the character that they wrote the best. But having those styles kind of come together Mm -hmm. and having some kind of cohesion. I'm interested to see the film because I haven't seen any rough footage, (laughs) nothing. I was just I was just grinding every day. Sad life of a grip. Yeah. I don't mind gripping. I just don't want to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Like I think the next gig I'm working on, I'm doing sound. I'm doing sound for Brian, and then I think I'm AC for Willits. Oh yeah, yeah, you're gonna be AC on that. So I'm excited because I've 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 done sound a couple times, but now that I'm, I feel like my ear. I've trained my ear a little bit more this year. Mm-hmm. Like I'm listening for things. I think it might be a little bit better this time around. Instead of just capture the sound, dump it. I'm gonna be like trying to capture really good sound. And well, the film sure relies on you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm making sure I'm not cutting corners. Because yeah. um, I was I was doing sound on another film. And it was a really weird space where, like, there was a lot of echo and electronic distortion. Like, mm-hmm. if the microphone was in a certain position. Oh, yeah. It would totally interfere. It, it was would... weird. I think it was because it was right next to a place where there was a bunch of heavy electronic equipment. So You'll even get that like, hum. Yeah. So even my microphone placement, I was like, the whole, I was sweating bullets the entire two-day shoot because I had not checked out lavaliers because most of the sound that we're going to be using <laughs> yeah. was going to be recorded in post because it was for a dancer and there was like a sound there was someone playing piano so i'm like i can get away with just a shotgun mm-hmm. microphone recording like the two lines of dialogue and then on the day i wasn't happy with it and the director was okay with it and i haven't seen the final product yet but uh i'm never making that mistake again like good is good enough is not good enough when you're doing sound like you gotta go the extra mile and then man that was i was i was stressing bro <laughs> post-production that's where it all lies yeah the, oh, man. the film i like recently made i only had a boom microphone for the entire shoot but i made it work <laughs> in post are you uh pro tools uh savvy uh i mean i just kind of do everything in adobe for the most part okay but uh i mean i could work around with whatever i know pro tools but I can just kind of make it work with whatever I'm given. I record and do everything mostly in Fruity Loops for music making. Fruity Loops? Fruity Loops. I've never heard of that. Really? Okay. It's, it's a pretty big okay. program. But, <laughs> but and so I, I do a lot in there also. They're, I love their uh, parametric EQ the most. So I can really like... What does that do, mean? Uh, it's just an equalizer except it's way better than most equalizers because it shows you as things are playing where the waveforms are in relation to where you're dragging like all the the eq marks okay so i mean it's just way better than most where just sliders mm-hmm. like is most people's but these are like three-dimensional place placements you can you know put wherever you want nice. so, and it shows you like exactly what you're doing with the waveform it's not many uh, other programs have an EQ as good as that one, I'd argue. But it's really funny how even with everything being super digital, they've now had to make stuff to make it feel analog. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> analog is so much better. Like I've got all these little knobs on GarageBand, but I wish I could just have an actual knob to adjust <laughs> while we're talking, so I can hear the difference. But it's like I'm not going to be messing with EQ oh, while we're cool. recording. Uh, well, that's is output. It? This is gain. 
Yeah, I was about to say that you have gain knobs. You could totally just play knobs. with that. I was playing with them a little bit. Um, cause you well, you're not you, riding them hard enough, man. Well, dude, stop hating on me, please. I'll try. Okay, thank Sorry. you. I appreciate it. Sorry. I'm just challenging you. I just got to figure out this limiter compressor thing. Man, I sound so unprofessional. It's because I am. I'm still an amateur. I'm okay with that. I have a lot to learn. Grad school. And admitting that <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing is the first step on the path to learning. It's very true. Yes. Yeah. So you've done one week of grad school. Yes. One full week. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> Goodness. Are you recording any music coming up soon? Yeah. Uh, or are you going to fo- You should probably just focus. I, you know, take my advice. Just focus on the, the coursework. I'm never going to be able to do that. <laughs> See, the rhetoric, which we didn't talk much about, I didn't actually produce the music for. Okay. Uh, it was like those were professionally made beats and then I record onto them and then I mix and master them myself and whatnot. Um, but for the most part, I didn't do the instrumentation. I do my own instrumentation for other, you know, there was a collaborative album we made um, with my buddy that I produced all the instrumentals so for. For our listeners, what, what, what's your uh, your moniker? Uh, I go by Pathos. Uh, my buddy, who I've mentioned several times in the podcast, he goes by MC Freeman. He does a lot of really weird stuff uh, in every genre. He's all around the best musician, just generally. He could pick up any instrument at any time and just know it. It's amazing this guy is. Um, and then when we perform together, record together, we go by Twisted Kids. Okay. Um, so we have every year for um, December, we would make something called Twisted Kids Stole Christmas, where every single day of December, we would release a new song that we would record and write the day of and release it that day. And then on Christmas, we would release all like 24 songs for free um, to the viewers. Uh, after like we got our production up, it would be 12 days of Christmas, still Twisted Kids Still Christmas. Um, and the one that we last did was in 2015, 16, one of those, 15 probably, uh, where I produced all the instrumentals. And we're working on one now um, since we've graduated where we're doing all the instrumentation ourselves too. So it's no samples. It's just us playing instruments, making the beats and recording over them. And that's going to be out soon. That's going to be called Twisted Kids Stole Hanukkah. Um, probably around Hanukkah time this year. Okay. It, so that's fun. And then I just started finally working on my first solo debut thing that I'm both producing and recording just myself for so and i'm about a couple songs deep into that but i'm still making whipping up the instrumentals and you're on bandcamp right bandcamp uh pathoshiphop.bandcamp.com check it out dear listener yeah if you're interested do it do it so i have a question (laughs) and no one's been able to answer this for me because well i haven't been digging very deeply Mm -hmm. what is the difference between a mixtape and an album like I, I don't get it because Juicy J drops like three mixtapes, but it has original instrumentals. But then it's not really an album until Katy Perry has a guest on it or something stupid like that. It's relatively arbitrary. It's similar to why our move, what defines an indie movie versus a blockbuster. Even though like some indie movies have big time directors and actors on it, and it, it's kind of like that. Uh, that's at least the metaphor I stick with. Analogy, whatever the right terminology is. Um, <laughs> But a mixtape is kind of when you don't necessarily own what 
you're dispersing. Because like Chance the Rapper, for instance, his first mixtape was huge and he released it for free. It was Acid Rap. And although the producer made all those instrumentals for him, it's still a mixtape because he didn't clear the samples, for instance. Got it. So albums are really when you own everything about this album and you're able to actually disperse it for money. Um, Mixtapes usually use other people's stuff with the true intention of giving it out for free. And then EPs, um, similar in every genre of just more of like a smaller album to release. So Okay, that clears things up. Yeah. Thank you. No problem. (laughs) My little brother was so so into uh, rubber band business. By Juicy J, like when Lex Luger was first like blowing up, um, I haven't heard much from about him lately. He kind of just blew up and then disappeared. Most of those producers kind of died down, honestly. That's crazy because I, I mean, I'm really gonna give away my ignorance of quality uh, hip hop, but when Flockavelli came out, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I had like just started lifting, and I'll tell you what, man, that album is hard. There's a lot of there's a lot of good hip hop you just, can you can get. It just hits so hard, and then I was like, yeah, well, what's the next hardest rapper I can think of? Young Jeezy, boom. So I listened to Thug Motivation 101, which is still one of my favorite albums. Like I really like that album. Um, but then I, you know, a friend of mine said, Robert, you're listening to a lot of shitty cocaine rap, and I want it's you to true. I want you to stop that. It's just shit that you put on, and people are so on cocaine, and the the loud screaming just like turns people up. Yeah. It Which makes, is it, it has its place in yes. music, but if you want like good hip hop that is also pretty heavy, like kind of Wu Tang style, mm-hmm. um, modern day rapper Joey Badass, if you okay. know him, he does some. He was in a collective, but his solo music is just as heavy with kind of a Wu Tang style, just gritty New York, just you know. But it's lyrical as well. It has like nice punchlines. His newest tape is called America with three Ks. And it makes a huge political statement. It's, I can imagine. It's amazing. Honestly, I'd recommend that to anyone. Uh, but Joey Badass. Joey Badass. Did you see Luke Cage, Netflix show? I haven't yet, no. Well, there is a scene where uh, it's about to be like this really awesome kind of fight scene. And I hear the intro to Bring the Ruckus. <laughs> and I just got chills. I'm like, are they going to play that entire song? And they do. Bring the motherfucking ruckus. They play Bring the Ruckus. During this fight scene where Luke Cage is destroying incredible. people. And, yeah, okay, and, I'm watching it tonight. <laughs> well, that, I mean, if you, if you, the thing about Luke Cage, like my, my little brother is, is like, when you're, because I mean, as a rapper, okay, you are by default engaging with black culture. Oh, yeah. In a creative way. Oh, yeah. And there are some people that take it seriously, some people don't. Um, Luke Cage, as a show, ties together so much of black culture with music lifestyle the way families mm-hmm. work um barber shops what the neighborhood is like um the history of harlem the history like it ties together like black history and culture in this amazing package now i'm not going to claim to be an expert on black culture mm-hmm. but that tv show did it really nicely for me to where i was pointing out these re- seeing these references like there's one character who he's given this speech about like controlling his business or whatever and in the back you can hear like John Lee Hooker playing you know and then he starts playing uh, a keyboard you know like a a song from church Um, and then you hear Wu-Tang and then Charles Bradley's a guest and then Raphael Sadiq is a a guest in one episode and then 
you know, they talk about Prince and then like one guy has a massive portrait of, mm-hmm. of Biggie on the wall. And like, it's just, I... It's intertwined. It's, I mean, that's the way that it should be done, yeah. honestly. I mean, and that's like one of the biggest problems with rap. Uh, because, I mean, even a lot of people don't understand the difference between hip-hop and rap. Okay. F- for me and our listeners, what's the difference? Well, hip-hop is just the culture in general. It's not a genre. It's the culture. Okay. It's, you know, it's made up of b-boying, graffiti, DJing, and MCing. Rap is the MCing element. So where a lot of rappers go wrong is that they call themselves a rapper, but they don't indulge in hip-hop culture. And especially when white artists do that, that's when it's problematic because they're capitalizing on the culture, but not being a part of the culture. The culture has its own trials and tribulations, you know? And I mean, what with it being like a black artistic, you know, element, it's, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, everything like that is intertwined with hip hop, just, you know, naturally. And so many rappers who are, capitalizing making money off this entire culture but aren't contributing to the you know, the problems that the culture faces and those are where people like um uh iggy azalea goes wrong where they're just like i mean i mean look at miley cyrus who went into hip-hop and the entire culture of it made money off of it and then as soon as people got tired of her she went back to doing country and saying i was brainwashed by black culture you know, Did she say that? Yeah, pretty much. I, that wasn't verbatim, but it was very close. I, I had I was dating a girl once who <laughs> who made me watch that um, Miley Cyrus video twenty three. Oh gosh! And I, I sat there in the club with my shades on. with my shades on. So I'm sitting there with my my hands clasped in my lap, <laughs> looking thoughtfully at the computer screen. And when it was over, I just I looked at her and I said, that was terrible. <laughs> so that was atrocious. And she goes, oh, come on. I'm like, no. No, that's not good. And then I played her like Erica Badu, oh, I think. Erica Badu. And I said, I said, this is good. And she she agreed with me. And then we kind of were trading songs back and forth. Then she made me play this. She played this song for me with like Drake and like five other rappers that had the most ADD, high-tension twitchy production on it that I actually said could you, could you turn this off can we please turn it because it was just too much I'm like I'm like, there's nothing no substance if I can be pretentious there is no substance to that it's a catchy hook you can play in the club and watching someone like Miley Cyrus co-opting like oh I'm on perp like I'm bad I'm bad and I'm into rap I was offended I'm not even like a big rap fan that's the th- it, it bothered me just because it seemed like such a that was gross. That's that kind of, I mean, that's where rap has gotten to. And that, that's like the sad part is back in the 90s, you know, the debatable hip hop golden era of music. I mean, some say the 80s, some say, the, I mean, the late 70s when it started. But either way, that whole time period was rappers talking about actual <laughs> stories. You know, even if it was about drugs and violence, it was because that's what they were living. You know, you had Biggie saying all this shit about selling drugs, and it's because he was selling drugs. He was poor. That's the entire thing. Is it was, a, it was a genre and a culture that came out of, you know, poverty. Mm-hmm. And then the culture started being, you know, started making money. And now rappers are talking about how much money they have, completely, you know, paradoxing what it was built on and it's still in that era where it's like 
pushing all these things that the culture does not represent and people are getting the wrong idea by labeling something hip-hop and it's just diluting the culture down i mean it's I can see it in Athens. My first year here in Athens was impeccable. You know, every month at the Union, we had hip-hop shows, actual hip-hop shows, where while MCs were performing, you had we had whiteboards for graffiti artists, local graffiti artists, to, nice. to tag the really? whiteboards. We had There was a b-boy group on campus who would come to the shows and actually do breakdancing at the Union while we were performing. You had spoken word poets go up and do spoken word before the MCs would go on or in between. You know, battle rapping was a component. If literally there was times where if an art we let an artist on who was just killing the crowd, no one wanted to go. Another MC would get on stage and just start battle rapping them. I did it once; it was amazing. But um, at least at the union, so it was such a deep culture of you had our DJ DJ Comp. He used to, he would scratch along, like he would, before the show, he would play music and he would do live scratching. He would scratch during our songs if he felt like it was nice placement for it. It was a beautiful moment. It was a beautiful year. Comp B, Sladley, he started making electronic music with uh, some of the local rappers because he got more shows that way. I don't blame him whatsoever, but it was kind of sad. you know, MCing started becoming more just trap rappers who we'd get in the shows, who'd wear shades indoors while they're performing on stage, and it was a, it was an appearance, it was a gimmick, it wasn't, you know, this art. B boy, I mean, there's one b boy guy left in the group in Athens. One, I know one guy who actually live scratches. Tommy Leatherman. He he performs at uh, the tap room all the time, um, and then there's. Hardly any MCs I know that are still in Athens that actually do actual poetic storytelling hip hop with their own style versus just regurgitated radio rap. Mm-hmm. It's it's sad that Athens has gone here over the five years I've been here, but you know, and that, it's kind of like that in radio music. You have a few artists who are holding this thread of what hip hop was. You have Kendrick Lamar who's doing you know this crazy stuff, this modern day hip hop. It has the twist of the modern age sound, but it's still completely enveloped with... I mean, on his last album, he had uh, uh, DJ... Why is I'm blanking on this? He had, like, actual 90s DJs who used to be on, uh, like, Kid Capri and stuff, who would be on the 90s tapes of, like, Biggie and stuff, doing, like, Oh, it's the world premiere, you know? Really? Yeah, and he... that The same person was on his latest album doing Hype Man... You know, kind of to tie back in what we started with. Bobby. Yeah. Bobby. I mean, so you still have artists doing this, but they're just... Kendrick's the only one out right now that's actually turning radio music into art. Everyone else is just regurgitating the same... (laughs) That was actually me reciting a song that... So... It's... Every time I hear a really, really bad overproduced rap song i always i usually turn and go like who, who are we listening to and, it, <laughs> and the answer is almost always drake you don't even have to get me started it is drake. almost always Drake, and, and it's to the point where i still don't recognize him <laughs> when i hear him but every time i ask someone they're like oh it's drake and i just go no drake's drake. one of those ones that's right on the line of like i mean he's super popular people yeah. love him 
but it's like good for him i you know would that we were also financially successful jacob right and i can't hate the guy because he definitely hustles and he definitely does the work i'm gonna hate him purely because he's not telling an authentic story that's okay. kind of how I judge any musician. That's why, I mean, I, I, one of the first things I said was that I just can't rap what other people say. Like, I, I, it doesn't feel right. And, you know, he had the, the big song, Started From The Bottom, Now We Hear. He started in Canada in Degrassi. He was on Degrassi. He was an actor. He was famous already. Like, he didn't start from... Like, the rappers before them started literally selling crack on the streets. And they came up out of literally nothing. And that's that's why I can get behind, you know, somewhat quasi-offensive lyrics from the '90s rappers because at least they were speaking their own voice. Mm-hmm. But most of the rappers now are just telling wives' tales, just complete bullshit. <laughs> I, got, I pop mollies. I'm, I get drunk every weekend. I was trying to. I was talking to someone about. Uh drugs and and you know young people and uh, I'm gonna really sound like an old man now but this is fine <laughs> I don't really care and and I had this like this moment of um, this kind of flash of understanding when I was probably like I must have been like 17 uh, and I was I was an undergrad I was I was a year ahead so I was I was like 17 freshman year of college which is brutal um, and everyone like was like, oh, it's so cool to get drunk. It's so cool to do these drugs. It's so cool to do this. And I always, like, I did those things. <laughs> I'm not claiming innocence. However, it always struck me. I was like, that does not make you cool. No. Anyone can consume an illicit substance. Anyone can smoke a cigarette. Anyone can have a beer. Mm-hmm. Anyone can poison themselves till they're paralytic and vomiting everywhere. But the, there's something like where we attach like that's cool. Like, what do you do? Oh, I get high. It's like great. You spend your money on getting high. Cool. <laughs> Congratulations. What have you done with your life? And so even though like you know, of course I I indulged in that uh, lifestyle, not to any extreme kind of way. I mean, I was in a fraternity, but uh, <gasps> uh, I would have never guessed. I've got stories. There's good fraternities out there, not not oh, in fraternities, but there are some things that I'm never going to stereotype. Repeat. Well, of course, of course, the frapper thing. But it was funny. I was, I was for our listeners. I was telling you last night. I was forced into rap mm-hmm. when uh, the first night of pledging. I was thrown into the back of a car. Well, not thrown. <laughs> I was gently led to the back of a car. That's thrown. He just didn't want to admit. Oh, he was I was being hazed. hazed. I was being <laughs> hazed like like crazy. Um, in the back of a car, and uh, they put on. Three Six Mafias, they about to find your body. Really loud. Really loud. I gotta say, that's kind of kick-ass. <laughs> and then I listened to nothing but like Three Six Mafia for like two years. Which is, and that's before they blew up. That's like mm. right around, that was right before, no, that's right after Hustle and Flow. So, oh, wow. so Three Six Mafia like was blowing up with Most Known Unknown mm. right when I got into them. And then I started listening to all their older stuff and I was like, wow, because like, they, they have some dark. Oh, yeah. Dark dark music that is not the radio friendly juicy j collaboration oh, no, no not at all <laughs> and and but then like the two albums they put out after most known unknown were like were terrible and then they came back and did the mafia mm-hmm. six which is actually back to like way their their roots which oh, i yeah. actually really enjoyed but uh yeah the frat thing but yeah all this to say 
I'm starting to, and I was, I, I was talking, I talk to people about this a lot because it's suddenly become like really clear to mm-hmm. me. Is that like if you want to do something like meaningful, like you have to produce something. It's not yeah. about consuming. You ever meet people that have read all the right books, watched all the right movies, listened to all the right music, mm-hmm. wear the right clothes, and they're the most boring people you've ever met? Yeah, because those are just <laughs> trophies. There's no personality. It's just a trophy case of this is everything that I've absorbed. I have no, I, I'm nothing like any of these people. It's just I, I've done this. Right. Yeah. You, you've hit some kind of threshold of cultural acceptability yeah. by being into these things. Uh, and that's, it. first of all, that's like running on a treadmill. Mm-hmm. Seriously, because it's, there's always something new you have to catch up on. There was a time where I used to watch every Academy Award nominated film every year. And I'd watch the Academy Awards. And I'd listen to like every best new music that came out on pitchfork and like i was i was trying to keep up and i was trying to read all like all the books that everyone was talking about and like oh you have to read this or like oh, okay okay that's smart people read that i'll read it then after a while i was like wait a minute i'm not even interested in half this stuff i'm just going to watch whatever the hell i feel like watching read whatever the hell i feel like reading listen to what i feel like listening to and screw you guys that's how you get your own voice well that's the other thing about creativity is is like let's bring it back to hip-hop You've got a couple of people carrying the torch that are actually doing interesting things with mm-hmm. the art form. Okay, and then you have a bunch of people that see that and they copy the surface and make a lot of money off of, of sort of, yeah, um, what, would you, what would you call it? Um, they're aping a style. Piggybacking. Yeah, the yeah. Piggy, that's a better way to put it. Piggybacking a style rather than actually saying something because they need to say mm-hmm. it. And if you are making a film just to make a film, yeah, then it's it's not really art. You might no. make you might make a good film or whatever, but unless you need to make something, mm-hmm. like the last the last film the film I'm finishing up right now, like it sounds really pretentious, but like I had to make that, and it it, it was stressing me out. Like I lost I lost ten pounds while I was working on doing pre production on that film. I was only eating like one meal a day. I couldn't sleep. I was chain smoking cigarettes like a crazy person. Um. It, it was it was I was miserable for like three weeks, but when I saw that footage for the first time, when the dailies came back, when I got that sixteen millimeter print, I just went, worth it. That's even harder for sixteen millimeter because you gotta wait like five days oh after the waiting, sending the footage out. The waiting, oh, it was terrible. It's like just get, to know, did I even get any of that? Did we open up the the gate enough? Did we set the lights enough? And then then you watch it and you're like, oh my god. It's in focus. <laughs> and th- that's the other thing, too, because there were other projects where, like, you'd have a good take on performance, but it was slightly soft focus. Mm-hmm. And there was, oh, my, it's it's brutal, man. You got to get someone pulling focus. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> we keep saying that. It's, there, pay attention. I, no, I, 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 I know you will. I know you're not. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be talking to you right now if I didn't. No, you were competent. Okay? You don't get to you don't get to hang out in the studio space unless I like you. So, I feel obligated to do a good job. You better, you better. <laughs> I'll be there. No, but but having like my friend Robin was telling me that um, the wave of fantasy fiction that came out after J.R.R. Tolkien mm-hmm. was uh, a lot of it was just blatant ripoffs. You know, then they oh, make yeah. um like I can't remember when Dungeons and Dragons was actually invented, but it was all based off the Lord of the Rings. And everything was like you know, but there's only three books and then we've got the Hobbit and we've got the Silmarillion. Like there needs there needs to be more. And then these writers came up who were like, wait a minute, I've got an idea. No one else has done that idea. I'll write it. And they wrote it. 
And then that starts new subgenres in mm-hmm. fantasy literature. And then, then you start getting like sci-fi, and then you get the, the giants of sci-fi. You know, someone like uh, um, Asimov, or, or you get uh, what's his face? Um, who did Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Who did that? Philip Dick. Yeah, Philip K. Dick. He had an idea and pursued an idea. It's not just space opera. Like that's a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. Hard science fiction versus <laughs> soft science fiction, but. He, they, he, they had ideas mm-hmm. and then they made them happen and then yeah. everyone else comes along and piggybacks with like the mass market paperback that has the same tropes but doesn't yep. actually make you think about something I mean that's what happens with everything look at the British invasion you oh know my God. That's, a, that's a whole fascinating chapter of music history you can't even get me started on the Beatles honestly okay. I, well, I've studied way too much about the Beatles we'll save that for the next conversation Deal. but one of the things about, and this applies to music as well, mm-hmm. similar with the hip hop. I was talking to my mom. I kept playing her, like when I was starting, starting to get into music, I, I'd be playing her like Radiohead and I'd be playing her. Um, but even before Radiohead, it was like I discovered Linkin Park. Okay. <laughs> R.I.P. First angry, yeah, I know, Whew, man. Um, first angry music that I really got into was Linkin Park's Hybrid Theory. Looking back, <laughs> the fact that I'm admitting that. Most metalheads would be like, "Are you? Oh, dude, Linkin Park sucks." Linkin Park was one of those bands that was the hybrid the gateway, that got though. me. But, yeah. yeah, but th- then you, then there's gateways like, okay, well, then what other kind of music sounds like this? And then you start finding, then you, then I started getting into like dude rock, mm-hmm. you know. And then it's, it's like Godsmack and uh, uh, like Ben. If you listen to this, I'm not trying to insult you, but like Breaking Benjamin, you get more into that like hard rock that's not really metal, mm-hmm. and then. I started skateboarding with these kids and they introduced me to Lamb of God. I was like, whoa, <laughs> it gets even yeah. heavier. And then they're like, well, you got to I'm sure they to got it. you into Misfits. Yep. Yeah, skate. We love we, Misfits. We, oh, we love the Misfits. And then Danzig. Anyway, but I got into all that kind of stuff. So I'm playing this stuff for my mom and she just goes, you know, this sounds a lot like, and then she'd play stuff from the 70s that like sounded like the bands I was playing for her. And I was like, oh, and then you realize that that's where they came from. And it turns out that all heavy music goes back to the first four Black Sabbath albums. <laughs> and so if you listen to those four albums, which I've been doing religiously lately, uh, you can hear Black Sabbath in every metal band. Like all the riffs that Tony Iommi came up with are pretty much chopped up, rearranged, sped up, slowed down, makes every metal song. That's amazing. And so my mom said, you know, Robert, like I, I can appreciate what you're listening to. And I mean, she was a saint for, for all the... Yeah, but it all links <laughs> back to the Beatles helter-skelter. That's all I'm saying. It, that's, <laughs> I will give you that. But she said, you know, I, at this point in my life, I'm not interested really in looking for new music. I, I'd rather go back to the classics, the originals. So I'd be playing her drive-by truckers. And she would be like, Robert, you ever listen to the Allman Brothers? And like, no, I haven't. So then I listen to the Allman Brothers. I'm like, oh, that's where that comes from. Cool. And then, you know, I'd play. I was a guy, Dylan LeBlanc. Um, and then she'd be like, Robert, come on. This, this is Neil Young. This is Neil <laughs> Young, Robert. And this, so then we'd listen to Neil Young together. So it's, you got to really know your roots. You can't. Yeah, you got to look at your influences. influences. I mean, that's part of the controversy with Elvis. Is like Elvis predominantly just did black songs, yeah, and in his own way. But it was kind of a, I mean, it's such a, a gray area. But he also inadvertently made those black performers more, like, gave them more publicity than they would have gotten. You know, so mm-hmm. it's like that weird. But it, he adopted it all from this black culture. And but it links. So even though we know more about who Elvis is, it's also how we know Big Mama Thornton. Exactly. <laughs> or uh, you ever listen to Mahalia Jackson? Oh yeah. 
Cookie DiOrio um, did a a musical review of uh, Mahalia Jackson songs at the Unitarian Church in drag. It's actually on YouTube somewhere. If you look up, um, this is uh, incredible. Yeah, I'll I'll show it to you. It's it's amazing. Yeah, Cookie DiOrio. Everyone should look up Cookie DiOrio if you want to see a really. The name alone <laughs> is warranted of a of a Google search. <laughs> oh my God, it's great. It's so funny because yeah, Corey Corey Walker's a just wonderful guy really and i would actually take metal songs to him to listen to and ask him like how did they achieve this vocally and he would say (laughs) well robert that's not really something i specialize in and uh, i think we should go for a more clean sound so he was so patient with me i I can't i can't thank him enough for putting up with my nonsense for so long but actually i played danzig for him because danzig has a song on uh his second album lucifuge uh called blood and tears it, so- it sounds like like an elvis or roy orbison song like it's it's a oh, kind of wow. dark lyrically but it's this beautiful baritone kind of slow song he does and Corey said well you could you could definitely do that like that's a good song so anyway i could see you doing like johnny cash yeah yeah your yeah. voice it's like I'm stuck in Folsom prison <laughs> <laughs> yeah something i just the perform like public speaking i'm totally cool with I like doing voiceover. Like I want to narrate documentaries. Like that's what I, I really enjoyed doing that, or do like industrials. Um, but yeah, the the musical part of it. I think that I have an idea for a musical I want to put together. Of course, it's not your average musical. Uh, more of a metal kind of musical, but I can imagine performing it as a live show. Ooh. But it would be my own material that I wrote. I don't want to jump in and be like, hey, I'll be the voice of the plant in Little Shop mm. of Horrors. Like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to spend my time auditioning to be an actor on stage. But I would act for something that I wanted to perform if I thought I was the only one who could do it. That makes sense. Yeah. So I, I kind of envy the, the like my girlfriend's an actress and, and, and she she loves acting and finding characters and being on stage and conveying ideas. Like the, like the being an actress mm-hmm. is like, what she's really good at, what she loves doing. I want to act in certain little things. Like acting itself is not enough. It has to be for this project or because I want to figure something out about this or I want to exercise this idea or see if I can do, like in Reunion, can I do fight choreography? Um, that kind of stuff. So it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be a strange, it's been a strange zigzaggy route my adult life, Jacob. Well, you still have a couple more years at grad school, so... Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to the projects that I've already committed to. I'm really excited about it. And my feature screenplay class with Natasha, I'm already really getting excited about. I've got some fun ideas for that. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming over. I don't I don't uh, I don't want to keep you here for too much longer, but uh, one more time like where can people find you on um the media, the interwebs. Um, well, I'm all I'm on social media, of course. Uh, you can find me on uh, on Facebook. I have a Facebook page. I honestly don't get on it much um, for my fan page or whatever. But I'm Pathos on there. Um, it's easier to just connect with my SoundCloud and or my Bandcamp. SoundCloud, I kind of just post instrumentals I make, like at the halfway point of and making it's them. P A T H O S. Yes, Pathos. P A T H O S, like um, the Aristotle terms. Um, 
my mixtape rhetoric is my solo thing but i have many other tapes under the the alias twisted kids um you can find our band camps easily under google search um my personal one is pathos bandcamp i think pathoshiphop.bandcamp.com uh i it'd be pretty easy to find me i'd imagine um but yeah, so I mean, just look me up. I have a YouTube as well where I put some of my music videos as well as um, just individual songs I'll post every now and then. And you can just type in like Pathos Hip Hop on there as well. Uh, if you want to throw in a tag of like Athens, Ohio or Ohio in general, it might help the search. But yeah, look me up. Is there any footage of you breakdancing? Breakdancing? <laughs> I don't know, breakdancing. <laughs> There's probably something somewhere of me drunk breakdancing at some point and just slamming myself into the ground. Yeah. You ever have one of those nights where you drink a little bit too much? Always. Okay. Um, <laughs> dramatic pause. And then the next day, your memory starts coming back to you like in little fleeting snatches. You're like, wow, what happened last night? Like, man, that was, wow, I got very drunk. Um, I had one of those nights last year and, uh, I was talking to someone. I remembered like little things like, oh, I remember this music we were playing. And I remembered, you know, getting in a wrestling match with Willits. And, and oh, that then, night. That was yeah. a fun night. <laughs> and then someone says, yeah, and you were doing the worm on the living room floor. And I went, oh, my God, I was. <laughs> so I was doing the worm at one point and That's dancing amazing. to uh, jump on it, uh, apparently, is what happened. I, I memory of that's very foggy but i wondered why like my stomach was so sore <laughs> my legs were my knees were bruised i'm like why am i why do i hurt i want to close it out with the story there was one time i got back from a night of drinking at the river park apartments and my buddy who was also drunk but we were on on two separate wavelengths of uh what we were doing that night he was he's an odd fellow but he's my best friend he was shooting fireworks off the balcony of our of our apartment and i walk in mid him firing off like these bottle rockets and stuff and i was just like oh yeah let's do this so of course i went out and i wasn't holding it right and apparently all the fiery ash shot back into my face from where i was holding it up and i woke up the next morning i was like my eye fucking hurts <laughs> And I just had all these like scabby like burn marks around my eye and like on my eyelid and it was pretty badass, but it was like a second where I had to reacquaint myself and be like, that actually happened. It wasn't a dream. <laughs> Dang. All right. Awesome. Well, we got to have you back soon. I will love to be back. Talk more. Yeah. yeah awesome. All right. Cool. Well, see you next time, guys. See you.